This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to the next episode of our podcast, The New Normal. My name is Jane Robertson and I'm an associate with Charles Russell Speechley's in the construction team. Joining me today, we have Paul Henty. Paul is a partner in the construction team and specialising in procurement. And Paul and I are going to be discussing how procurement has been affected by COVID-19. Paul, you recently wrote an article on procuring in a pandemic in which you discussed what you term as the five C's, cash flow, contracts, construction, cards and competition. For our listeners who haven't had a chance to read your article yet, the premise of this is that the UK Crown Commercial Services released a series of three public policy notes. And also following the second note, the Cabinet Office issued guidance specifically for construction contracts. Paul, maybe if we can just set out some of the background as to why these guidance notes were issued and starting with PPN 1, which was titled Responding to COVID-19. Hi, Jane. Yes, that's right. The first note was published in 2020. What was it about? Well, as many of our listeners will be aware, the public procurement rules require most purchases above a certain value to be awarded only after a competitive tender process. And that can be quite a time-consuming procedure. Obviously, as everyone's aware, during the worst phases of COVID-19, there were certain things, I think PPE and ventilators, which needed to be bought with real urgency. And that urgency didn't always allow for public procurement processes. So the purpose of this guidance was really to provide guidance, provide advice to public bodies such as central government ministries, local authorities, NHS bodies, on how they could procure effectively and promptly in light of the COVID pandemic. So to procure quickly, but also in a way which was compliant with the rules. So for example, there was quite a bit of guidance within the notes on exemptions from public procurement rules and situations in which you might actually be entitled to buy things without having a competitive tender process at all. Now, talk of exemptions from procurement rules always makes public bodies nervous. They're worried that they're going to get it wrong, that they haven't got a good ground to use those exemptions, and that they could get sued or their contract could get declared invalid. But nonetheless, the exemptions are there. Regulation 32.2, for example, is talked about quite a bit in the note. Now, this is um, a right in exceptional circumstances where there is urgency and where the circumstances are not attributable to a failure to plan on the part of the public. There is a right to go out into the market and buy directly without any competitive tender process. As I said, Jane, public bodies get nervous about using this exemption. But what the note did was basically say that we as the government, our view is that these are exceptional circumstances. And that if you can make a good case that your procurement is linked to urgency brought about by COVID-19, e.g. PPE. Um, No one could really dispute that because of PPE, because of um, the COVID outbreak, that more PPE was needed, that you might have good grounds not to have a procurement process at all and just buy from one chosen supplier. So on the one hand, it was giving a bit of comfort and legal certainty, but I think in being expressed that it needed to be linked to urgency and COVID-19, it was also sort of saying at the same time, it's not every procurement where you'll be justified to just go out into the market and buy from your chosen supplier. Obviously, certain things slowed down, things like sort of education, etc., educational services, purchases for classrooms, you might have needed less things to buy, not more, as schools were generally closed. It also provided uh, guidance on when you can run accelerated procurement processes with shorter timeframes, and also provided 
advice on when you could vary a contract. Now that might be a very efficient thing to do if you had a supplier who you wanted to buy more goods or works or, or services from because of COVID-19. There are certain exemptions which would allow you to increase the scope of that contract or change the contract in some way. Changing public contracts can be a bit of a fraught affair because if you change them too much, if you change them materially, then the law says you can be required to go back and tender the contract again because it's no longer like the contract that was originally tendered. But the guidance helpfully referred to an exemption which would allow you to increase the scope of a contract or increase the value of a contract by up to 50% where that was required because of situations of urgency linked to events beyond public bodies' control. And again, the note said, well, COVID-19 is, is, is clearly such an event. It, it also gave some practical advice saying things like, look, we're aware that these are difficult times in the market. Some goods and services, it, it's very much a seller's market. So you may be paying more than you would normally do. And that's not necessarily a problem, but keep a good audit trail and also keep a good audit trail as to why you considered yourself entitled to rely on exemptions. Thanks, Paul. And then moving on to PPN2, um, supplier relief due to COVID-19. Could you give us a bit of background on that as well? Yes, of course. The second note really was there to encourage public bodies to to look at their contract portfolio and identify contractors or suppliers who might be at risk because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It recognised in particular that certain businesses might have cash flow problems because because projects were suspended because of COVID-19. And it encouraged public bodies to think about ways that they could actually support their suppliers. So that could that would firstly mean sort of looking at their portfolio, identifying who was at risk. In many cases, that may well be construction contractors, just because, as we know, margins are quite tight uh, in construction. And also, they, it's quite labor intensive and contractors are required to, play, to pay subcontracts. Those liabilities don't go away just because there's a pandemic. So this note was asking public bodies to sort of identify suppliers who would need continued payment even if maybe their projects had been suspended and to look at ways in which they could support them. So it said that for example public bodies might want to think about forward ordering goods or services or works, making payments in advance, making interim payments, really supporting cash flow. But in doing that there was also an expectation or the note said there should be an expectation firstly that something would be being bought with that money. So it might be an advanced payment, but you know it should be for goods and services. It shouldn't just be as a charitable payment. It might be made in advance, but there should still be an expectation that the goods, works or services would still be delivered. And also the contractor should be clear about what the money would be used for, what the advanced payment should be used for. So that might be, for example, for employees, it might be to pay subcontractors, but it shouldn't just be to line the pocket of the contractor. Now, in order to sort of back that principle up, um, the note said that suppliers should agree to act on an open book basis, make cost data available to the contracting authority should they request. The contractors should also continue to pay employees and flow down funding to their subcontractors. Double recovery wasn't allowed, so that meant that you couldn't say to the public body on on the one hand well we need this money to pay employees and then with the same employees to claim back their wages through the CJRS furlough scheme. So the the purpose of this sort of the open book requirement was that records would be kept 
that the public body could request to see those records and just make sure that the contractor had been good to their word and had used the money in a way they, they, they'd said they would. The, the note also talked about other forms of relief. So that could be, for example, varying the contract, varying the expectations of performance by the contractor. The variation might, for example, take account of the fact that site entry was impossible during the lockdown period. It might also take account of the fact that workers could be off sick with the virus and therefore maybe milestones within the contract could be shifted in order to avoid the contractor being in breach under the contract. Now, as you mentioned, there was an additional note to support this guidance, which provided specific guidance in relation to construction contracts. And helpfully, that included a number of deeds of variation that could be used for different standard form construction contracts in order to implement changes that would support suppliers. So that was quite useful. But one thing that you did see in all of those deeds of variation was the mention of this open book requirement, the requirement to keep records, the requirement to allow the, the public body access to those records on request, and also a right of clawback in the event, for example, that the public body discovered that monies had been used for unauthorized purposes. So that's obviously an incentive for contractors to keep good records and to avoid any ambiguity in terms of what they're going to do with the money that they receive in advance. And finally, I mean, one thing that is recommended by the notice is that the, the public bodies should keep a good audit trail of the decisions that they, they take in relation to the changes that they implement so that that can be reviewed should the need arise. And PPN3, I believe, um, discusses the use of procurement cards. Could you just give us a brief explanation of the advice that was given there? Yeah, so this was quite a a short and simple notice. Procurement cards are a form of payment that are used by public bodies, and they are a very efficient way of making payments. So what that notice did was to firstly encourage the use of those cards wherever possible, and it also raised the authorization limits in terms of spending for those cards where they were used. Thanks, Paul. I think that was really helpful. I understand as well that things have moved on slightly since your article, and I think the government has published an updated note um, on its earlier COVID guidance. Could you give us a bit of background on how we've moved forward? Yeah, absolutely. So in June, the government issued its fourth procurement policy notice of the year, which is entitled Recovery and Transition from COVID-19. And this note, basically, PPN2, formally expired on the 30th of June. The PPN4 is updating that guidance, really. It says, firstly, that we we have to recognise that COVID-19 hasn't gone away and the situation could be with us for some time to come. Nonetheless, it feels it appropriate now for suppliers and public bodies to look at relief measures that may have been put in place as part of the measures recommended by PPN2 and to try to work out exit strategies. So, for example, where advance payments have been made, considering when those sorts of arrangements will be brought to an end. Advance payments may have been made, for example, for forward orders. So this notice is encouraging public bodies to make sure that they're getting bang for their buck and making sure that whatever it is they forward ordered, that the works or supplies are actually delivered. Rather soberingly as well, The notice pulls no punches in saying that in carrying out a review of the situation, which public bodies should now do, 
it might be the case that they come to the view that some contracts are just no longer uh, sustainable and should be should be terminated. I think that public bodies will be doing that with a heavy heart, particularly considering that, that they'll be wanting to support business wherever they can and ensure that job losses are minimised. But at the same time, public bodies too are, are facing their own financial constraints. So that might be something that we begin to see. Now, it, it says this, but also at the same time, it does say that suppliers can still continue to apply for relief in accordance with, with PPN2. The note, though, is quite explicit in saying that whether or not any supply relief is granted is really a matter for the public body. It has discretion to determine that. And, and I, I think, Jane, that's probably because in many circumstances, suppliers were going armed to their public customers with that note saying, right, we demand some relief. So this is sort of saying, well, you don't have an absolute right to that. And you may not have a legal remedy if the public body ultimately decides not to make advance payments or not to vary your contract in a way to make it easier for you. So the possibility of supplier relief is still there. But as I say, the note is really sort of aiming at getting people to act cooperatively in considering whether those relief measures now can begin to be tapered off and maybe sort of have a bit more of a return to to normal. Thanks, Paul. And now, well, perhaps putting you on the spot slightly, but I think one of the key questions that our listeners might have is, what can contractors and public bodies do to ensure that they don't run into problems with public procurement? There's a number of things that they can do. For example, where varying contracts, it's important to have in mind which exemption it is that they are going for and to keep an audit trail that will help them to show in the event of a challenge why they felt that particular exemption was available. So within Regulation 72, for example, I mentioned this earlier, that there is the potential for an increase in the value of a contract by up to 50%, where you can show that the change is necessary because of unforeseen circumstances. Um, I'm paraphrasing that slightly, but that's basically what the provision says. So, for example, the 50% threshold It is very important and possibly more complicated than people might think to be very careful about how you calculate the value of that change. I think the authority and the client can work together and help each other in looking at those sorts of issues. The guidance repeats in a few places that it is important to keep contemporaneous records about why decisions are being taken, the underlying reasoning. So I certainly think that is one thing that that can happen. It might also be that the parties decide that it would be appropriate to make certain disclosures in the official Journal of the European Union. The Regulation 72, which deals with changes to public contracts, actually says that in some circumstances you'll need to publish a notice anyway to give notice that certain changes to the contract have been carried out, but that can also protect the parties. Because once that notice is published, the time limit for bringing a challenge against the change would start because people are are aware of it or deemed to be aware of the change. 
So it's important not to overlook those modification notice requirements where they exist. And even where they don't exist, there are the possibility, there are possibilities under the rules to make voluntary disclosures in the official journal, which again will get the clock running on uh, any potential challenge. It could be that the parties hold off on implementation until that challenge period has passed. But where, where disclosures are made, it is very important though to review the wording carefully and to make sure that all relevant facts that could found a, a, a challenge are disclosed. And one other question that I know we've been asked recently is can public bodies continue to make payments to contractors where they are unable to provide the services? This is covered to a degree in, uh, in, in PPN2. It will depend upon the circumstance of the contractor. I think where the contractor is considered to be at risk, then it is possible that the public body will consider that that is an appropriate step to take. However, it will come with the caveat that obviously the works will need to be delivered at some point. So it might be that an advance payment is made for works in anticipation. It is very likely that the public body will want to know what the contractor is going to do with the money. It will want obviously records of how that money is spent to be kept. And it will also want to have an assurance that the works will be carried out at an agreed point. Now, it might not be within the same time frame that was originally stipulated within the contract because of the restrictions of COVID-19, but it will need to be carried out. So this isn't going to be a handout. It's not going to be a charitable payment. It's not going to be an opportunity for the contractor to make a profit on an early payment. But that might be a possibility if there are good reasons why that payment should be made. And also another issue that has come up recently is the guidance says contractors should operate on an open book basis. Mm. Can you explain what this means for contractors? Well, what it means for contractors is, um, as I said earlier, that, that they need to really maintain good records of how money is being spent and be very clear about how it's been allocated. I think also they, at the beginning, before accepting the payment, they need to have a very, very clear statement about their intentions. They need to review that statement, have it in writing. They need to review it for any ambiguities where disagreements could, could arise and make sure that subsequent records, receipts, accounts details are kept to give the public body comfort that they have been good to their word and used, used the money for exactly what they, they, they said they would use it for. As I, as I said earlier, Jane, it's important that they don't find themselves accused of having acted in a way that is dishonest, that they find themselves subject to requirements for clawback. The clawback provision is something that is found in all of the uh, template deeds of variation. So the public body will have a right to clawback payments where they were used for some other purpose. Contractors don't want to find themselves on the wrong end of that sort of request. And they also don't want to find future problems in terms of the debarment provisions of the public contracts regulations when they are competing for future contracts in regulated tender processes. Thank you, Paul. I think that makes complete sense. Obviously, now we understand why contractors should operate on that basis. But would you say that there are any drawbacks to, to that? Well, I personally, I think it will impose a bit more of an administrative burden. I think that nobody likes to be on the wrong end of an audit request 
a few years down the line, but I think forewarned is forearmed and provided that you keep those records as you're going along, you can make life a lot easier for yourself. Now, absent proper records maintained as you're going along, you could be creating a lot more work for yourself at a later stage. And you could also invite misunderstandings from the contracting authority, from the public body. But I think this is something where, as I said, it is really important to identify any potential ambiguity or different expectations at an early stage in order to save yourself future pain. So any agreement with a future potential audit request and clawback right has the potential to cause pain. The only thing you can do is mitigate that through a proper audit trail. Thanks, Paul. I think that's probably covered the very basics of the guidance. And I would say, to summarise, contracting authorities should, first of all, as first port of call, and whenever considering how best to procure quickly and effectively, particularly following COVID-19, look towards the government guidance. And I think, as we've just discussed, this is an ever-evolving situation. So it may be the case that further guidance is published um, as the circumstances continue to change. Um, Absolutely. So anyone carrying out procurement should be live to the advice given, I think, would be the, the key message I would get from that from what you said. Absolutely. And, and I think also, although PPN2 has been updated, PPN4 is quite clear that this is something that will continue to be relevant. And I think also, James, a key message that comes through both notices and is a subject of yet another notice issued by the government is that there is an expectation that parties will behave in a reasonable way and cooperate through these difficult times. Thank you, Paul, and thank you for um, joining me today. Thank you. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.